Good evening, and it's good to be back after Pesach, and we get straight into a double parsha, the parsha of Tazria and Metzira. As someone that reads the Torah, this is, I mean, reads the Torah like, you know, on, on Shabbat, so I have to read it from the original scroll. It's uh, one of the tougher ones to read. Um, they're simply just to memorize, uh, you know, all the different words, it's... Um, the you know the specific vowels and the nuances of the of the to, of the tunes. For some reason, I find these two parashas to be very difficult. Um, I don't think I'm alone in my assessment, and I find that it actually uh, kind of reflects the the content of the of these two uh, parshas. The the, the 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 you know most of the content of these two parshas is something that first of all today is not relevant practically. In other words, it's not applicable in a physical way. Uh, and even in the times of the Holy Temple, this mitzvah was something that was quite mysterious, um, something that eluded um, the logical mind. In fact, it is considered a choik. It is a, um, a supra-rational mitzvah, a mitzvah that makes no sense. It has no explanation in the physical parameters of the world, it has no biological explanation, um, has nothing to do with dermatology, and therefore, we are not even going to use the word leprosy. I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, so what does Tazria and Metzira mean? What, what are these parashas? What are these two parashas? The parasha of Tazria, it begins, it, essentially, at this point in the Torah, we already have a holy temple, right? We have the Mishkan, the tabernacle. It was inaugurated. It was, you know, it started to function in the desert. For the first time, the Jewish people have in their midst a holy temple, and if you want to talk about the Holy Temple in purely technical terms, besides for the fact that the tabernacle was a place where God's presence was revealed and you saw the cloud of God's glory above it and the fact that you know, that's where the service occurred, etc. But in, in purely technical terms, the Holy Temple is a place, it's a physical place, where someone who is ritually impure is not allowed to be there. Someone who is Tamei cannot be there. Only someone who is tahor, who is ritually pure, can be there. This is the technical halachic uh, ramifications of having either a mishkan, a tabernacle, or a beis hamikdash, a holy temple. Pretty much. So, right after the Torah describes, first of all, the building and the inauguration of the tabernacle, and what they did in the tabernacle, which was offer sacrifices, now the Torah comes and tells us, well... So who is allowed to be there? And what is considered Tuma and Tara? What is considered a situation where a human being is not allowed to be present in the holy temple parameters um, or, in, or in the tabernacle area? So this week's portion begins with ritual impurity that happens as a result of childbirth. When a woman is going to give birth to a boy, she is ritually impure for a certain amount of days, and then she goes to the mikveh, and then she has to wait another amount of days, go to the mikveh again, and then bring a sacrifice. Same thing is true when she has a baby girl. Then, right away, the Torah tells us a very unique style of ritual impurity. Now, by the way, the fact that uh, a woman, after childbirth, becomes ritually impure, that's also a choik. It's also something that's super rational. In general, the concept of tuma and tara, ritual purity and impurity, is... Um, is something that transcends logic. However, here is the difference between all of the other ritual impurities that occur and the ritual impurity that happens through what we're going to learn now, which is 
Tsaraas, which is typically translated as leprosy, but it's not leprosy. Let me explain. Childbirth is a natural phenomenon. Yeah. Women have babies all the time. Babies are born every second. Now the Torah tells us that when a woman goes through this experience, she becomes ritually impure for whatever, re- for whatever reason, right? Uh, ritual impurity does not uh, connote any type of negative thing on the person. It doesn't mean that they sinned. It's a state of ritual impurity, which is purified through the mikveh or through offering a sacrifice. Um, if someone comes in contact with a corpse, a corpse is a natural phenomenon. People die. And people have to touch those bodies, right? They have to bury them. If they bury the dead, it's a big mitzvah. And the Torah says, someone who touches a dead body, a corpse, becomes ritually impure. And like this, you have all other types of situations of ritual impurity happen through natural phenomena. Then the Torah tells us like this. Um, let's go inside on the, on the top of page one. This is from Parshas Tazria. Again, this week is a double Parsha. We're going to be taking quotes from both Parshas. If a man has... A se'eth, a sapachat, or a beheret on the skin of his flesh. And it forms a lesion of tzara'as on the skin of his flesh. What's a se'eth, what's a sapachas, what's a beheres? They just tell us these are different uh, shades of white. So a person has like a lesion that's white. There could be four different, sh- four different uh, shades of of it, there's the, the two main are Se'es and Beheres, and then there's like the you know the the the, the lower level of Se'es and the lower level of Beheres. Sapachas means like the next level. So there are four shades of white that if this appears on a, the skin of his flesh, he shall be brought to Aaron the Koyan or to one of his sons the Koyan. Usually, if you have a discoloring on your on your skin, you go to a dermatologist. What's a doctor? Skin doctor. Aaron was not a trained skin doctor. Aaron was a high priest. He served in the temple. He was slaughtering animals and offering them to God on the altar. He was lighting the menorah. Teaching Torah as well. What does he have to do with the skin condition? The koyin shall look at the lesion on the skin of his flesh. And if hair in the lesion has turned white. And the appearance of the lesion is deeper than the skin of his flesh. It is a lesion of tsaras. Now it's called tsaras. If it has a hair, it's tsaras. If it doesn't have a hair inside of it, it's not tsaras. Clearly, the word leprosy doesn't work here. Leprosy is a natural phenomenon. So we're going to we're not going to mention leprosy again. We're going to use the Hebrew word tsaras. When the Koyan sees this, when the Koyan sees this, the Torah doesn't say you should give him a cream. Or give him a special diet to get rid of the discoloring? No. He shall pronounce him unclean. There's a pronouncement that the coin makes. The word unclean is not a very good translation. He should pronounce him tome, ritually impure. Okay? Tome. Now, the Torah continues with many, 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 many verses describing all different types of skin Tzara'as, a discoloring on the skin, or on the head, or on the beard, all different scenarios that are called tzara'as. And in all of these cases, the Torah says, come to the Koyan, and if certain things, if if certain circumstances uh, come together, 
Then the Koyin pronounces this person Tomei. And then it also gives an idea of, you know, when is this officially considered healed? Fine. We're not going to get into that right now. Let's go uh, chapter 13, verse 49. If the lesion on the garment, the leather, the warp, or woof, the threads, or on any leather article is deep green or deep red, it is a lesion of tzara'as and it shall be shown to the kayin. <laughs> when, the, when the Torah finishes with the person's body, then it says, this could happen to garments, it could happen to your leather couches, or anything that's leather. If it has a discoloring that is green or red, and it's a certain size, certain circumstances, tzara'as. No one would ever consider a discolored garment a leper. That's not leprosy. But it's taras. And what should you do? The Torah doesn't say go to the tanner, the guy that works with leather, the leather worker. The Torah doesn't say go to the cleaners to clean it up. No, go to the koyin. Right? You show it to the koyin. The koyin determines if it's tommy, if it's not. It's a whole drama with the with this garment. Then let's go to the next parasha, Mitzayra, chapter 14, verses 34 and 35. When you come to the land of Canaan, which I am giving you as a possession, and I place a lesion of Tzara'as upon a house in the land of your possession. And the one, yeah, so now the house has Tzara'as. The house has a certain discoloring. It's green or red. <laughs> not blue, not, not purple, not white. Green or red, for whatever reason. So what should you do? The Torah doesn't say go and find the contractor to go and paint it over. A painter to paint it, or a contractor to go and fix up your house? No. And the one to whom the house belongs comes and tells the koyin, saying, something like a lesion has appeared to me in the house. The koyin is the go-to man for all of this. The koyin is dealing with all of these problems. All right. The main thing we want to take out of these verses is that the koyin is the person that deals with tzara'as, most importantly, he's the one that determines that this taras is actually taras, and therefore the person or the article of clothing or the house are tome. So let's hear how the Rebbe kind of goes through this, this issue. It's actually a fascinating concept here. There are two general laws regarding the ritual impurity of taras blemishes. Number one, the assessment of a blemish in order to establish whether it is impure or not, must be performed by a scholar trained in this field of knowledge. One who was instructed by his master and is thoroughly versed in all the blemishes and their names, including all those that affect a person and those that affect clothes and houses. Number one, in order to determine if this fits the criteria of Taras, you need to be a tremendous scholar. And by the way, a scholar doesn't mean someone who knows the books. He makes a point and it says someone who was instructed by his teacher, by his master. This is the type of wisdom that can only be received in person. Because you got to see the colors. It is very difficult to describe these colors. The Rambam, Maimonides, actually goes through a very fascinating several set of laws trying to describe uh, the different types of white. And then there's also like a mixture of red color that gets involved in the white. So he describes how you have cups of, of milk 
And a one cup, you drop one drop of blood. Another cup, you drop two drops of blood. Another one, three drops of blood. It's a whole thing. He describes it, yeah? It's something that's very difficult to understand and become proficient in through the books. You have to sit by a master and receive the wisdom. You have to see it. You have to experience it. Okay? So in order to determine if this discoloring, this lesion, whatever it might be, whether it's on the person, on the article of clothing, on the house, whether it fits the criteria of tzaraz, you need to be a scholar. Listen to this. The scholar need not be a koyin. To be accepted in tzaraz school, you don't have to be a koyin at all. And to be called to the tzaraz scene, to be there to make the assessment whether this fits the criteria of tzaraz, you don't have to be a koyin. You just have to be a scholar. On the contrary, every knowledgeable scholar is acceptable to assess blemishes. Okay? So let's say someone's a koyin, but he knows nothing about tzaraz. He fell asleep in that class. Is he helpful when it comes to this part of the investigation? Not at all. If this guy doesn't know what Saras is, doesn't know the criteria, doesn't know the colors, doesn't know the sizes, he's not helpful at all. He's not needed. Let's go to number two. The designation of a person, garment, or building as impure or pure is entirely dependent on a koyin. Even after the scholar determines that a blemish on a person's flesh is impure, he does not become impure until the koyin states, you are impure. Similarly, regarding his purification, even when he is healed from the tzara's blemish, he remains in a state of impurity until the koyin tells him, you are pure. Let's continue here, and I highlighted it in yellow, so that, you, that this is a very, very important point here. The statement of the koyin is the determining factor bringing about the person's or an object's state of impurity or purity. Therefore, even when a koyin does not know how to assess blemishes, and even if the koyin is a minor, he's under the age of bar mitzvah, or mentally deficient, he relies on the words of the scholar. The scholar assesses the afflicted person and tells the koyin, say impure. And the koyin says, tome, impure. Or he tells him, or the scholar says, say pure. And he says pure. This is wild stuff. So you have, you know, a guy comes to, to, to the rabbi and says, Rabbi, I think I've got saras. I think I have it. The rabbi says, okay, let's look at it. The rabbi looks at it. He thinks and then whatever he goes the whole thing. He finally determines, yeah, it's taras. Nothing happened. The man in question, the one who has this taras, is not impure. He can walk into the holy temple. He could eat sanctified food under certain circumstances, right? He's got the taras on him. But the rabbi says, "Well, I, I can't really do anything right now. I'm a descendant of King David. I'm a special guy." Very special. I come from very good pedigree, but I can't do anything. They look outside, and they see there's a, a six-year-old kid. It was a coin. Say, hey, kid, come here, come here. We need your help. You see this guy? He's got saras. Say, Tome. 
The child looks at the kid. He doesn't even understand what the guy wants. Right? I mean, he understands. He heard about tzaras. He cannot, he cannot tell if this is real tzaras or not. The rabbi said it's tzaras. And the rabbi tells him, say, Tomei, repeat after me, Tomei. And this child, the six-year-old boychik, who happens to be the son of a coin, says, Tomei, boom, lightning strikes. You touch this guy, you're ritually impure. This guy walks into holy temple. He's in big trouble. Why? Because this little boy chick, who happens to be a coin, said Tommy. Fascinating, huh? Do I need to prove to you that this is a choik, that this is a supra-rational concept mm-hmm. here? Not only do we not need a doctor. Yeah, that we know for sure. Okay, this has nothing to do with medicine, nothing to do with dermatology. Not only do we not need, I mean, so we do need to have an expert to know if this fits the criteria of tzaras. But once we've determined it is tzaras, nothing happens to this person. There's no development in this person's reality until a koyin, any koyin, could be the most righteous, prestigious, knowledgeable koyin, or it could be the simplest, low-life koyin, as long as he's a Koyan, he's the one that says, Tame, all of a sudden he's Tame. Ritually impure. What's going on here? Clarification is necessary. Number one, since the Koyan ultimately relies on the words of the scholar, why is the statement of the Koyan the determining factor? Right? Number two, what is the unique aspect of the impurity of Tzara'a's blemishes that specifically regarding them, the Torah introduces this novel concept that impurity, impurity are dependent on a koyin. Now, true, this is a scriptural decree, a choik, a divine fiat that transcends human logic. Nevertheless, as Rambam taught, even though the Torah's chukim, those super rational laws are decrees, nevertheless, it is befitting to contemplate them and whenever it is possible to provide a reason such a reason should be provided. In particular, this applies to a reason which enables us to improve our character traits. And by the time we finish today's talk, today's sicha, we're going to see how, how just dwelling on this issue, trying to find a reason for this, can radically change, radically change all of us. In the way we view others, and the way we, we just, you know, you'll, how do you say Buckle up and uh, wait, <laughs> enjoy the ride. Okay, let's first understand how illogical this is, that a koyin should be the one to say that a person is impure. It is logical to say that the fact that the purification of an afflicted person is dependent upon a koyin is an outgrowth of the fact that his impurity was originally dependent upon the koyin. Since the impurity is brought about by a koyin statement, purification from that state of impurity is also brought about specifically by a koyin statement. Okay, so let's, let's, let's first clarify certain things here. Number one, we have a person here that has a discoloring, he has a lesion on his skin. And this lesion fits the criteria of tsaras. Now, the fact that he's coming to the rabbi means that there's a problem. He's aware that there's a problem. There's, there, he, he's not well. He's not well. 
spiritually, obviously. I mean, and it's a spiritual, it's a spiritual malady that is expressing itself on his physical body. So the person is not well. We'll call him a chayla. Now he's, 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 he's a sick person. And this also applies to women, men and women. The, the idea of tzaras applied to both. Now, the ter- there's nothing that you could do about it. No, there's, there's no, there's no uh, remedies. There's nothing that could be done about it. During the, so now, a person that has such a thing now becomes ritually impure. How? Not because he has it, but because the kayan said tome. And the kayan says tome, becomes ritually impure. Now, whenever this malady, this discoloring, either gets small, it shrinks, or other circumstances happen, when certain factors come into play which would make this saras considered a healed saras. Even though the skin condition was healed, this person is not pure yet. He has to go again to the koyin, or the koyin has to come to him. And the koyin has to say, Tahr, you are pure. And then he has to go through a whole process of ritual purification till he could finally come back into the holy temple, till he could finally eat sacrificial meat, etc. Now, the fact that the koyin is the one that he has to say pure makes sense. Why? He was the one that made him impure. So his statement is going to make him pure. But this leads us to an original question. This is difficult to understand. Why is it that a koyin is the one who determines and causes a Jew to become ritually impure? On the contrary, a koyin is the epitome of purity. Koyinim are supposed to be pure. They're supposed to be in, in a state of readiness to go into the holy temple. They have to be in a state of readiness to eat sacrificial meat. To the, to the point that they're not allowed to go to funerals. They're not allowed to be on the Hevra Kadisha. They're not allowed to bury the dead. It's a mitzvah that it was taken away from them. They are prohibited from engaging in such an important mitzvah. Why? Because they have a more important mitzvah, which is to constantly be in a state of purity. If it's a close relative, a parent, a sibling, a child, a spouse, they have to become ritually impure. Fine. The Kohen Gadol is not allowed to. The high priest is not allowed to. Be it as it may, the Kohen of all the Jewish people, the one who is the poster boy, the epitome of purity is the Kohen. And what does this whole story of Tzaras tell us? Ah, in order for this Mitzayra, the one who has this discoloring uh, condition on his skin to become impure, you need to find a Koyin to say Tome. Which basically means that the Koyin is the, the source of all his problems. He's the source of his impurity. How, how does that make any sense? This is the question tonight. How is it possible that the coin should be the source of ritual impurity. How it is, fine, this is a chayk, it's super irrational. The whole idea of Tuma and Tara, ritual purity and impurity, doesn't make any sense. It, it transcends logic. Right? Fine, no problem. But that specifically the coin who's the epitome of purity should be the source and the reason why someone becomes impure? He should be the agent of impurity? What, what is there to be gained from that? Or to say it deeper, what hidden message is there here that can radically change our lives? All right. So first of all, let's understand the severity of the ritual impurity of Tsaras. The ritual impurity of Tsaras is extremely severe. 
in some ways even more severe than the ritual impurity of someone who was in contact with a corpse. When it comes to tumor, when it comes to ritual impurity, there are different levels. There are some types of ritual impurities that only make the person ritually impure for that day. And all they have to do is go to the mikveh. Some ritual impurities make them impure for at least seven days. And during that time, going to the mikveh is not enough. They also need to be sprinkled with the water that was mixed with the ashes of the red heifer. And there's different levels here. But during that time of ritual impurity, usually all it really means is that they can't go into the holy temple. The Mitzayra, someone who is ritually impure through Tzara'as, not only cannot be in the holy temple, he is banished from the community. Now what does that mean? What does that mean he's banished from the community? So let's, let's read. There's a lot of, in other words, in the times when the Jewish people were in the desert, it meant that they were banished outside of the clouds of glory that surrounded them. When they came into the land of Israel, what this practically meant was, when they came into Israel and they inherited the land, they conquered the land, there were cities that were walled in. They're called the walled, Ir Mukaf they were they were walled cities. And these walled cities um, were granted uh, a higher, a more superior level of holiness than the rest of Israel. And then from the walled cities, the holiest of those cities was the city of Jerusalem. There are different, you know, different issues that apply to walled cities and, 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 and not to other cities and not to other places in Israel. And one of them is that if a person is a Metzairo, if someone has this ritual impurity of tzaras and they live in the walled city, they live in Jerusalem, they live in a different walled city, they have to leave the walled city. Which is symbolic of the idea that this person is now banished from the community. Why is that? So Rambam, Maimonides said at the very end of his laws of tzaras, which by the way is 16 chapters, it's amazing. 16 chapters of Maimonides dealing with this thing that has nothing to do with physical natural phenomenon. It, it, it's, it's an amazing idea. Anyway, but let's continue here. The Rambam concludes with the following idea. Tzaras is a collective term, including many afflictions that do not resemble each other. For the whitening of a person's skin is called tzaras, as is the falling out of some of the hair of his head or beard, and the change of the color of clothes or houses. This change that affects clothes and houses, which the Torah described with the general term of tzaras, is not a natural occurrence. Instead, it is a sign and a wonder prevalent among the Jewish people to warn them against lashon hara, undesirable speech, gossip, you know, slander, all of these things under the category of lashon hara. And the Rambam explains, when a person speaks lashon hara, the walls of his house change color. If he repents, the house will be purified. If, however, he persists in his wickedness until the house is destroyed, which is one of the things that happens if the Tzaras persists over there and they go through the whole process, at the end of the day, the house is destroyed. Then, uh, the leather implements in his house upon which he sits and lies change color. If he repents, they will be purified. If, they, if, he, if he persists in his wickedness until they are burnt, which, by the way, the burning of of this leather couch is what would happen if uh, this tzaras persists. Then the clothes he wears change color. If he repents, they will be purified. If he persists in his wickedness until they are burned, his skin undergoes changes and he develops tzaras. This causes him to be isolated and for it to be made known that he must remain alone so that he will not be involved in the talk of the wicked, which is folly and lashon hara. Essentially, what tzaras is symbolic of 
is that a person has sinned to the point where the only way to fix this guy up is by sending him away from the community. That's a huge statement. To say this guy has fallen so low that he is Tomei, and now this Tuma means he's got to be out of the community. He's not even allowed to be other, around other Mitzayroim. I mean, he's not allowed to be around other people that are also ritually impure. This Mitzayra has to be isolated. It has to be far away. So the Rebbe says, okay, this is like, you know, the practical application of the law, that a person had to be isolated. This is also the spiritual implication of Tzara's impurity. It is such a serious state of impurity that it causes the afflicted person to be completely distanced from the camp of holiness. He is, as it were, isolated from any connection to the Jewish people, God's holy nation. Now, it doesn't mean the material is not Jewish anymore, but he's banished. The, 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 how do you say, the treatment of the Mitzrayah is essentially a banishment from the community. Now, here's where you got to listen up. Given the seriousness of such a state, the Torah asks, who is the one who can determine whether another Jew should be banished, heaven forbid, from the camp of holiness? And what's the answer? Only a koyin. Why? Why does the koyin have that right? Why does the koyin have the, how do you say, why does he have the license to go and banish someone from the community? So for this we have to understand something important about the nature of what a koyin is all about. A koyin's fundamental function is to bless his nation Israel with love. He is a man of kindness who blesses the Jewish people and does so lovingly. Before the koyin makes the blessing of Yevarechecha, he gives the priestly blessing. So he makes a blessing. He makes a blessing on the blessing, understand? <laughs> He's giving a blessing to the people, but because that's a mitzvah for the koyin to do it, so he makes a blessing, just like every Jew makes a blessing on putting on tefillin, every Jew makes a blessing on, on uh, eating matzah, uh, you make a blessing on shaking the lulav and esrik, the koyin makes a blessing before he blesses the people. And the blessing is very, very similar to ours. Baruch Hashem But here it changes. Asher He who has sanctified us with the holiness of Aaron, V'tzivonu, and commanded us, L'varech Yisrael, to bless his nation Israel, Ba'ahava, in love. Our sages were the ones that decided, you know, how the blessing should be said. And if, and if a koyin drops the word ba'ava, he has not said a blessing. You can't say amen on such a blessing. In other words, it's not enough for him to bless. He must do so lovingly. To the point that the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, says the following. However, if a koyin hates the congregation, or they hate him, so if he's standing in front of them and there's tension between him and the people he's supposed to bless, it is dangerous for him to deliver the blessing. He should therefore leave the synagogue before it begins. You hear this? Not only should he not bless them, go out. Don't be involved. Because the most important element necessary for this mitzvah to happen is love. 
This is the intent that underlies the wording that the sages ordained for the preliminary blessing to bless his people Israel with love. The essential DNA of a Koyen is that he's a man of kindness and a man of love. He loves his fellow Jews. That's what a Koyen is. Now, Code of Jewish Law says, I know that a Koyen is still a human being. And therefore, if for whatever reason he got into a fight with someone and he hates that person, just don't, don't do your function as a Koyen when you're in that energy. When you have that type of negative energy around you with those vibes, go away from it. Don't behave Kohen-like when you're hating. Because being a Kohen and hating are kind of like two opposites. They, they don't work. A Kohen is a lover. He's a man of kindness and a man of peace. Now do you know why the Kohen has the license to banish someone from the community? Let's see how the Rebbe says it. For this reason, because a Kohen is a man of kindness, the Torah relies on him to deliver the ruling that a Jew must be banished outside the camp where he lives. Now, by the way, the Kohen can't change anything. There are certain realities on the ground. Either this discoloring on the skin has the criteria of Tsaras or it doesn't. And if it has the criteria of Tsaras, the Kohen can't make a different decision, can't override it, right? Can't do some backdoor dealings. Doesn't work that way, right? So let's continue. Most certainly, the ruling uttered by the Kohen must be based solely on the Torah's laws. For this reason, first and foremost, the blemish must be viewed by a scholar, steeped in the Torah's wisdom, and thoroughly versed in all the blemishes. Furthermore, the scholar must have received training from his master. The law is the law. The law cannot be changed. And the law cannot be manipulated, cannot be applied to the times, etc. No, this is a law that is the same dating all the way back to Moses. And the only one that can determine what the law is, the only one that can determine if the law applies here or doesn't apply here, is a scholar. Not a man of love. Love has no factor when it comes to determining the facts. However, however, when it comes to the actual application of the ruling, that stage, in other words, making it actually happen, allowing for that tumor, for that ritual impurity to to take root, and as a result for that person to actually be banished from the community, that stage must be carried out by a koyin, a man of kindness. Why? It is specifically he who has the sensitivity to appreciate the true severity of delivering such a harsh ruling to another Jew. Therefore, he will not forego any effort and will thoroughly investigate and question the scholar regarding his assessment. Following the motive implied by the verse, the collective will judge and the collective will save. When the sage calls in the Koyan and says, this guy is Tomei, the Koyan is not going to rush to do what the sage said. Say, well, let's, let's discuss it. Maybe this, that. He'll argue it out. He'll try to find a way how to actually not deliver that grave and very uh, very powerful statement of Tomei and as a result, this person is banished, right? He's going to work on it. And by the way, it might change the realities. I'll tell you a story in a moment, which actually is very fascinating. But... At, at the same time, yeah, we can all... So, okay, so here, here's the story. I just heard this yesterday. So there was once in a shtetl in Russia, they had a rabbi for many, many years, many decades. He was running an old man. 
was, you know, very, very old. So at one point they decided it's time to get some new rabbis in town. Should take over. So they kind of forced retirement on the older rabbi, and they brought in three younger rabbis, very knowledgeable, very, you know. And they, uh, now they started a new basedin, a new uh, rabbinical court. They're taking over, you know, and their old rabbi would sit in the shul, the same building, you know, the same room that they were sitting, and he would study. Anyway, so uh, one day, a man walks in, I mind you, this uh, this older rabbi was already a little bit, you know, blind. He wasn't blind, blind, but he, you know, hard of seeing. He was focused on his studies. So he overhears the following: a man walks in, he approaches the rabbis, and he tells them a whole story that he had a pot of meat that was cooking, and uh, a cup of milk fell into the meat. He had a milk sitting over there on the counter, or whatever, you know, fell into the meat. So the rabbis asked him a few questions: you know, how big was the pot, and how much meat was in the pot. And how much milk was there in the cup? And the guy told them all the different things. They made their calculations. They um, discussed it between themselves. And they said, uh, sorry to tell you, but this is a case of milk and meat that has been cooked together. There are some situations where if the amount of milk that fell into the meat, if there was 60 times more meat than the milk, then it's fine. In other words, the milk has been diluted or has been overpowered by the meat to the point that it's irrelevant. This is a law, and it's called bottle b'shishim. It's, it's diluted in 60... In other words, if, if there's less than 2% of milk fell in. So if you have, you know, the, uh, uh, how do you say, 100 gallons of, of meat, I'm just you know, saying, it counts 100 gallons of meat uh, were cooking, and a half a gallon of milk fell in, um, it's not a problem. If uh, two gallons of milk fell in, then there's a problem. Half a gallon, whatever, half a gallon of milk fell in, it's not a problem. All right, so let's say this situation was that uh, you had a, a pot with 100 gallons of, of meat, whatever, the entire meat soup, whatever, was 100 gallons. And uh, this guy comes and says that a two-gallon bottle of milk fell into it. So the rabbi is you know, disgusted and they said, we're sorry, but uh, this is not bottle. It is not diluted in 60. So therefore, you're going to have to throw away this uh, pot, 100 gallons of, of meat. So... The rabbi, after the guy left, the rabbi calls them over. He says, tell me something. This guy that, uh, that came to ask the question, was he dressed in a suit or was he dressed in rags? So he said he was, he was dressed in rags. He said, call him back right away. <laughs> call him back. He says, rabbi, why are we calling him back? There's, there's, I mean, unless you have a different code of Jewish law than us, <laughs> there's no way of doing this. He says, call him back right now. Okay. They run after the man, they call him back and say, the, rabbi, the old rabbi wants to talk to you. So they come, they, they come to the thing, and the rabbi says, let's go for a walk. So the, the old rabbi and the three younger rabbis and the poor man that came with this question, they go for a walk, and he says, where are we going, rabbi? He says, we're going to the market. They go to the market, and in the market there were different places, they were selling meat, selling fish, vegetables, fruits, then they come to the place where different vendors sell milk. So the rabbi is standing in front of the different milk vendors, and he says, tell me, where did you buy the milk? From which vendor? So I bought it from the guy that sells it for the cheapest. You know, Yankel over there, he sells milk for the cheapest. So the rabbi walks up to Yankel. He says, Yankel, come here. Tell me the truth. When you sell a two-gallon bottle of milk, how much milk is in there? He says, Rabbi, Rabbi, please don't ruin my business. Don't, don't worry. This is, I say, you're not incriminating yourself. I, just, I need to know. 
says, look, the only way that I could sell it for much cheaper to the poorer people in town is if uh, half of it is uh, water. So it's half milk, half water. Rabbi turns around to the poor man and says, my friend, you could use 100 gallons of, of, uh, of meat for the wedding of your daughter tomorrow. And he went home. What happened here? Well, basically, it's 100 gallons of, of meat with only one gallon of milk fell in. It's bottle. It's totally nullified because the rest was water. This rabbi taught these three younger rabbis a very important lesson. Don't rush to give, uh, to give a ruling. You, you, you might know the ruling in the books, but you always have to assess the person in front of you. When you look, look deeply into what, what's going on over here, you might realize there's a different reality. Again, the halacha didn't change. The halacha was the same. It's only nullified if there's 60 times more meat than the milk. The problem was that the communication wasn't perfect because the owner of the, of the, the guy who came with the question didn't either know that the milk that fell in was only half milk, half water. But because this rabbi wanted to find a way how to save 100 gallons of meat from this poor guy, well, it's a lot of money, it's a big loss. So he was willing to investigate it deeper. He was willing to go out of the shul, go into the marketplace, go and do that type of investigation in order to ensure that the true halacha is going to be uh, carried out. So what's going to happen over here? The, the koyin is going to come. The scholar says, look, koyin, you know, I did my investigation. I know what I'm talking about. It's tummy. But the koyin is going to be so bad because the koyin is such a isha chesed, a person of kindness loves this fellow Jew, and realizes, if I'm going to say Tommy, this guy is going to be banished from the community, he's going to grill the scholar. And by the way, the more questions you ask, the more the scholar thinks. And who, who knows? Maybe we'll find a way. We'll find a way how to determine that, no, he's actually not Tommy. We're not going to change the law. But we're going to investigate deeper and better. Why? Because the Quran really doesn't want this to happen. The coin really feels for it. The coin is invested by, by default of the fact that he's a coin. That's why the coin has to be there. Even though the coin is not the biggest scholar, even though the coin is not able to make the determination, that because he's the one making the designation, that's why Tara wanted that he should be the one to designate. Why? Because when it's dependent on the coin, the coin is going to make the scholar Meshuga to try to find a way how to, how to make sure that the guy. Uh, should not be banished from the community. And then on the other hand, at the same time, well, we're continuing on page four, at the same time, we can also be certain that the Kohen will invest all of his energies to see to it that afterward the afflicted person will be able to be purified. Okay, so here we have the answer to our question. Why is it that the Kohen is the one that causes ritual impurity to take root on the Mitzayra to the point that he's banished from the community? Not because he's the source of ritual impurity, but because this ritual impurity is so severe, the Torah wants that a person of chesed and of true avas Yisrael, true love for a fellow Jew, should be involved here. Because he, the Torah wants only someone that appreciates how severe the issue is and who really has an invested interest in ensuring that this should not actually happen. All right, so now we have to get to the main question. So how does this impact us today? How does it impact us today? Get ready for a ride here. There is a clear, dire there, there is a clear directive from above, applicable in every era and place. 
When one sees that a fellow Jew has an undesirable quality, heaven forbid, to the extent that he is in such a deplorable state that he has taken himself outside of the collective and thus is unworthy of being together with the Jewish people, a hasty decision may not be made. The Torah dictates that even a great scholar, learned in the entire Torah, whose analysis stemming from the wisdom of the Torah leads to the assessment that such a person must be distanced from others and sent outside the camp where he lives, may not immediately deliver such a judgment regarding another Jew. Even if he knows that according to the books, according to the rules, according to everything, this person actually needs to be distanced. No, you have to stop. Who do you have to find? A coin. What does that mean you have to find the coin? Before doing so, he must carefully examine himself regarding his own level of kindness in Avas Yisrael. But we're not talking here about Saras. Saras doesn't apply today, right? So this, this is not the discussion now. Now we're discussing the spirit of the reality of Saras. There are some scenarios where you have members of the Jewish community that do something that is so deplorable, so terrible, so, as you say, so, so negative for the rest of the community that Jewish law determines that such a person must be banished. There, there is such a reality. There's such a reality. We should never know of such a thing. But it does happen. And who could determine that someone actually is in that state? Who could determine that someone fits that criteria? Only a scholar. Only someone that knows Torah law. Someone that has a tradition of Torah law. Only that person could determine that, right? So you have a scholar who analyzed the situation thoroughly and based on the wisdom of the Torah came to the conclusion that such a person does not belong with the community. He has to stop. Before handing down such a decision, before implementing such a thing, of banishing someone from the community, of saying they, they have nothing to do with us. They are not us. We have nothing to do with them. Before doing so, he has to examine himself and say, one second, where, where am I with regard to Ahavas Yisrael, to true, transparent, selfless love for a fellow Jew? If a person does not have the characteristic qualities of a Koyin, if he is lacking in genuine Ahavas Yisrael, he does not have the right to issue such a ruling regarding another Jew. <laughs> Even if the rabbi is a koyin, right? There are rabbis that are koyinim. Just because you're a koyin doesn't mean anything. Yeah, do you actually love your fellow Jew as yourself? It is possible that his inclination to deliver such a ruling does not stem solely from analysis based on the Torah's wisdom, but rather results from his own unrefined character traits. As we said before about the story of the older rabbi, these three rabbis, they delivered a based on Torah wisdom, right? But hey, buddy, before you apply Torah wisdom, you have to investigate the case. Since they were young, inexperienced, they didn't have the, how you say, the intuition to realize that if the man standing in front of them is in rags, that probably means that, in other words, they, they didn't realize that there's a difference in the price of the milk. They didn't catch the fact that the way the person dresses tells us something about the case, right? In other words, they weren't missing in their wisdom of Torah knowledge, but they were, they were missing in experience. They were missing the, the intuition that's necessary to apply the proper ruling. 
And the same thing would apply to this scenario. There's a scholar investigating a case. Some Jews did something so deplorable. And according to Jewish law, we have to banish them. Why did you, why did you come to such a conclusion? Only because of wisdom of the Torah? Or maybe you have some biases. Maybe you have other things going on. Maybe politics is playing a role in your decision. What's going on here? That's what, the, what this mitzvah is telling us is before the scholar hands down the ruling, which would mean that a Jew has to be banished from the community, he has to investigate his own inner koyin. Do I love this person like myself or not? The Torah rule. That's good the Rebbe actually turns it on its head now. That was going to turn the entire case on its head. The Torah rules that the blemish alone does not generate the state of impurity, but rather it is the ruling conveyed by the statement of the koyhen, the man of kindness, when he says you are impure, that causes the afflicted person to become impure. I'll give you a very fascinating example. The Torah law tells us, Maimonides writes this, it's in the Talmud, etc. This is a tradition all the way from Moses and it's based off of a nuance in, uh, in, in, the, in the verse. Let's say a chassan, a guy, he's getting married that day, right? He's getting married. He's on the way to his wedding. And all of a sudden he sees he's got himself some tzaraz on his hand. And he runs to the rabbi. He says, rabbi, look, look what I got here. The halacha tells us, the rabbi should tell him, buddy, I don't want to see it. Come back after Sheva brachas. Come back after a week. Go to your wedding. Get married. Dance away the night. Party for seven days with your wife, and then come back to me. We'll deal with it then. What do you mean? The guy has Saras. It's clearly Saras. <laughs> Until the client says, Tommy, nothing happened. He can go and celebrate. Let's say it's the day before Pesach. Right before Pesach. The guy's getting ready for the Seder. Eh, but he looks. He's got himself some Saras. Comes to the rabbi says, Rabbi, look what happened. Oh, what's going to happen for Pesach now? The family's not going to have a Seder. You know what the rabbi tells him? Buddy, I don't want to see you until after Pesach. Go home. Go bring the carbon Pesach. Go bring the Paschal lamb in the temple. This guy can walk into the holy temple, bring his Paschal lamb. Everything's good. After Pesach comes to the rabbi. The rabbi says, yeah, man, it's Let's bring in the Koyin. And the Koyin says, Tommy. Oh, then he becomes Tommy. Then he's banished from the community. See here the rabbi says something so powerful. Thus it follows that anyone who is not a koyin, a man of kindness, who issues a ruling that another Jew must be banished outside the camp where he lives, is uttering a falsehood. The only time that you can say this person has to be outside the camp is if a koyin said so. If a koyin didn't say this, the guy doesn't have to go nowhere. So if you, Mr. Hotshot Scholar, I'm not, you know, let's not be disparaging about this guy. He's a scholar, he knows Torah, he knows it well. And he came to the determination that this blemish is a Tzaras. But before examining himself to be sure that he is a Koyin, that he truly loves his fellow Jews, he rushed and he said, get out of the camp, leave the community, you don't belong among us. That's false. That's not true. You're not a coin and you can't say it. So if you go and say that, hey, this person has to be away from the community because he's a Metzairah, you're lying. You know what the punishment for a liar is? You know what happens to a liar? 
They are the Mitzayra. As such, they were on page 5 here, as such, he himself can be considered an afflicted person, a Mitzayra. Mitzayra comes from the words, Moitzi Sheim Ra, one who slanders his fellow. As our sages interpret the verse, these are the laws of the Mitzayra, as these are the laws pertaining to one who maliciously gossips about his fellow. Firstly, the person issuing such a ruling is spreading lush and horror regarding a fellow Jew. For our sages explain that malicious gossip can be termed lush and horror even when a person is telling the truth, an act for which one is liable to be punished with tzara's blemishes. Moreover, in this instance, who can say he is telling the truth? Does he really know that person's inner state? Quite possibly, a person who makes such a statement is moitzi shame ra, spreading slander, spreading falsehood regarding his fellow. So now, let's go back to our case here. The scholar sees a situa- situation, you have some Jews, they're behaving very improperly, etc. He came to the determination that, oh, they have to be banished from the community, and he goes and he makes the statement. But the problem was he did not tap into his inner koyin. He's got some other issues going on. There's politics involved. There's other issues going involved. And he goes and says, oh, banish them from the community. W- one second. You're the Mitzayda now. You're the one that's spreading gossip. You're the one that's slandering others. How should such a Torah scholar correct his fault? He should dwell alone outside the camp where he lives, remaining in such a state until he has habituated himself to look at another Jew with a favorable eye. Until then, he should remain apart from other Jews and not create strife with his malicious speech and slander. Only when he is healed from this blemish can he return and be restored to health. health. The Rebbe was delivering this. This was in 1985-86. Very, very tense times within the Jewish community in many, many different areas of Jewish communal life. And there were scholars that were going out there and the way they were activating and, and, and inspiring their base inspiring their communities by, was by saying, we are not them, they are outsiders, they're not Jewish. These were, these were the terms that were being used. And the Rebbe was basically saying, what, what is going on here? That was, that was ba- I mean, the Rebbe knew what was going on in these communities and what was going on. It was all about politics. It was all, there was a lot of bias going on. There was a lot, of, a lot going on. Nothing to do with Avas Yisrael. And the Rebbe was basically making a statement. Anyone that goes and ostracizes other Jews, separates himself or herself from other Jews, they are the problem. Because only a koyin, only someone that has true avas Yisrael, true love for their fellow Jew, only that type of person can make such a determination. And a koyin is going to do everything possible to find ways how the tumah should not apply. Uh, we'll just end off with the story and then finish the the the, the sicha uh, with the previous rebbe in the in the 1930s. He was in Vienna. This is a very tense time for uh, for the Jewish communities. There was a lot of there was a lot of um, a lot of fighting with regard to tradition, etc. And the previous rebbe was someone who did a lot of outreach to many different communities. So there were some members of. Uh, you know, the, of, of, of the Orthodox community that came to the previous rabbi and they said, you know, we see that you do outreach to such characters about which the Code of Jewish Law says some very severe stuff about them. You know, the, the definition of such people and Torah law basically says, whatever, there's no point in, and, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain why I'm not saying it here. 
So they asked him, Rabbi, you know, fine. So you don't actually do it because we can't do it nowadays. But why do you why do you do outreach to them? Why do you engage with them? Why do you, you know, why do you deal with them? So he said, you know, the code of Jewish law has four sections. Okay, there's four sections to the code of Jewish law. These laws about, uh, you know, what to do with such Jews who are behaving in such a way, how to deal with them, is in the fourth section, in the third to last chapter. All right? There's hundreds of chapters in the fourth section. In the third to last chapter, you have these laws about how to deal with such Jews. The laws about obviously Israel are in the first section. <laughs> <laughs> when you'll finish all four sections and get to that chapter, come back to me. We'll, we'll discuss it then. Right? What was he saying? He wasn't saying that those laws are not in the Shulchan Aruch. Of course they are. He was aware of them. He was aware of them. But what he was telling them was, you know, there's other sections in the Shulchan Aruch. There's other laws that pertain to Avas Yisrael, love for a fellow Jew. And those are the laws that I focus on and that based on my understanding, my, the prism that I have to the rest of Torah, through these laws, I see that these Jews do not belong in that category. It's not that that category doesn't exist. Of course it exists. The Torah says it exists. But these Jews that I see in front of me, these Jews in this community, they, they that doesn't apply to them. The Jews that I see in front of me, I see those Jews that they are deserving of my unconditional love. And let's conclude here. It is by conducting ourselves with true Avas Yisrael, showing unrestrained and, gra- and, 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 and gratuitous love that we can nullify the exile, which the exile is described as tzaras, right? Because the Mitzvah is banished from the Jewish community. When uh, God you know, caused that the Holy Temple should be destroyed, we were banished from Israel. We were sent into exile. So that's a type of tzaras. So the redemption is called the healing of the tzaras. Um, so when we conduct ourselves with true Avas Yisrael, we, uh, we can nullify the exile that was caused by unrestrained and baseless hatred. Then, as a natural consequence, the true and ultimate redemption led by Mashiach will come immediately. May it happen speedily in our days. I think, I think the Rebbe delivered more than expected. Huh? The Rebbe gave us a bomb of a question. <laughs> we didn't know how we were going to crawl out of it. And he explained it. And then he described to us how this could actually change our character traits. So, thank you all for joining us, and please join us again next thank week. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank, thank you, you Rabbi. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Absolutely. You.